0: And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. There seem to be phone calls coming in. That's really bizarre. Welcome, anyway, amidst technical difficulties, as usual, on the other side of midnight. It is Saturday. It is January 4th, 2020. Can you believe it is already 2020? What an extraordinary um, adventure we apparently have ahead of us. Um, I had a guest on last week who was kind of making some forecasts of what was going to come to pass this uh, coming year, and he called it the Roaring 2020s. And of course, right on schedule, something happened uh, a couple of days ago. The president uh, uh, took out with a drone strike a major military political figure in the uh, state of Iran, uh, from the state of Iran. It was in Baghdad where the Uh, military action actually occurred and as we used to say all hell broke loose so we seem to be tonight on the verge of something very serious and very unpleasant and very unnecessary Uh, maybe maybe hopefully not another Mideast east war so as kind of prelude for what could be happening I asked uh, Uh, Dr. Richard Spence to join us. And for the first half hour or so, uh, Rick is going to give us a backgrounder in the history of Iran, uh, why we have reached the present situation, and what might happen in the future. And then uh, also joining us at the same time will be Dr. Carmen Bolter, who is going to broaden our view, because I wanted to look at the roots of the human condition which seems to be in a state of perennial war. And as the radio gods ordained, uh, we booked Carmen before this certain turn of historical events. And the um, uh, confluence of history has made it quite elegant and quite important that we talk to Carmen tonight about the background for how we got here. Why is the human race, like at every turn, apparently predisposed to go to war against someone, some other, some group, some nation, some enemy, some they are not us. I mean, it's really sad that in the first days of the second decade of the 21st century, this is a topic of serious interest and discussion. So we're going to talk in some detail about the background of this current crisis. And then, as I said, as the program progresses through the morning and the evening, or vice versa, we will expand our view to consider historical and anthropological and archaeological evidence that it not always thus. And our current age, this age of patriarchy and the obsession with, you know, murdering each other is not the way it has always been. So how did we get here? Well, that's going to be the subject of the next three hours. One other item, as you know, if you have been following the program, in the outer solar system, just now under the orbit of Mars, there is this tiny object, a so-called comet called Borisov, which is barreling through the solar system at more than three times the velocity of that would be required to have it leave the sun forever. It cannot be captured by the gravitational influence of our star, having entered in the last year as the second known and verified interstellar object to ever have visited our little solar system. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because in the cosmic frame... This object turns out to have all kinds of celestial mechanics that strongly, I mean, overwhelmingly indicate it has not been sent to us by nature, but by some kind of intelligence. Two key big data points. On December 19th, and this is all universal uh, time, which is Greenwich, um, it passed 1.95 AU from planet Earth. 1.95, of course, is one of those metonymic codes for the famed hyperdimensional number, 19.5, indicating the physics. And it then dips inward toward the sun, inward toward the Earth, and we close the distance to a slightly lesser realm, and then it begins to recede, and tonight it is receding and if you go to the first, I'm sorry, the second, three items in my um, items in Radio with Pictures, two, three, four, and five. Item number two is the direct link to the JPL small database browser, which is, which is an interactive computer system that allows you to plot in real time the, the distance and motions uh, of comet Borisov. Three, four, and five of my items are screen grabs I did of the 19th, actually 19.5, midnight, universal time. It was at 19, again, 1.95 AU. And then on December 20th, it reached a distance of 1.947, which was just a few hours later. And then coming up on Monday, on the 7th, universal time, January 7th of 2020, it will again be moving back out and will be precisely at 1.95 AU. And of course, January 7th is intriguing because, A, that's the day next week when the House and Senate return to operations in Washington, D.C., and the Congress is going to be considering the evidence that uh, will be offered by the White House vis-à-vis why we're doing what we're doing with Iran. And January 7th also is a a number code because there are seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. And the whole 19.5 system is based on the um, uh, enclosed angles of a tetrahedron sphere where three points reach up or down depending upon your relevance of of, uh, hemispherical designation to 19.5 degrees north or 19.5 degrees south. So on the date of the seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron, an object coded with these tetrahedral angles is at 1.95 AU from the Earth and nothing about this can be natural. So who sent this object? Why is it passing through? Is it a code for the Those inside, certainly at 16.4 magnitudes, that's an optical uh, calibration system. It's thousands of times below the uh, visible limit to an object being able to be seen with the naked eye. So this is only for those that are in the know, which, aside from you, my listeners, are very few tonight on planet Earth Are ever aware of this object passing, or its numerical codes, which raises the question: Is this also an arcane part of a patriarchal system of control? Let me turn to my guest tonight. Dr. Richard Spence has been on the show many, many, many times. He is a professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. Richard's major published works include Boris Sakinoff, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Sydney Agent, Six, Secret Agent, sorry, 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. And you can read the rest of his biography on the guest page of The Other Side of Midnight. Dr. Carmen Bolter is director, producer, and writer of the famous Pyramid Code. I strongly, strongly recommend that you go and find this epic five episode documentary series that is aired on national television now in 38 countries and is on Netflix in 17 regions. Carmen is a retired professor from the Graduate Division of Educational Research at the University of Calgary in Canada. She taught at Chikua Technology University in Taiwan for four years and was director of the Women's Therapy and Research Center in Calgary for 10 years. Dr. Carmen has been involved in all aspects of the vision and development of the interactive U.com, an online learning and social action network. She is the author of the groundbreaking book, Angels and Archetypes, an Evolutionary Map of Feminine Consciousness. And she has traveled to 66 different countries to conduct her research, including Egypt, where she had visited 34 times. Carmen is working on an exciting new documentary called The New Atlantis, filmed in about 14 countries, I believe, and she is on the International Advisory Council for the Bosnian Pyramid Project and has been leading tours to Egypt for 23 years. So without further ado, Dr. Spence and Dr. Bolter, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight.
1: Thank you for having us on.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Okay, Rick, let's get right to it. What the heck is going on in the Middle East tonight?
1: Well, Qasim Soleimani got blown up at Baghdad International Airport. All right, so that's that's one of the things. But I guess the question is, what does that have to do with – how does that fit into a larger picture? So here's what I think is the immediate object of much of what is going on, What what is the, the kind of center arena. And that has to do with who controls Iraq. Now, notice that the attack on Soleimani – didn't take place on Iranian soil. It took place in Iraq. That was in many ways logistically simpler because the U.S. has bases in Iraq. It maintains forces there. That's the logistical hub that supports other U.S. forces deployed in Syria. Uh, And that is all because of agreements with the Iraqi government, which is the Iraqi government that basically we installed after de-installing Saddam Hussein back in 2003. Uh, That has been a very unstable government. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that Iraq is a – it is the kind of linchpin of the American position in the Middle East, certainly as pertains to Syria and much of the Gulf. Uh, The U.S. is there ostensibly with the permission of the Iraqi government, and that's one of the things that the attack on Soleimani has really thrown into question, because one of the things that's shaping up in Baghdad, and we'll have to see how this is going to shake out, but there is a, a powerful movement which is developing, to the extent powerful movements can develop, in the Iraqi parliament to kick the U.S. out of Iraq, to basically terminate the military cooperation agreements and insist that the United States evacuate its forces from Iraqi soil. Now we'll see how that will play out. There are powerful forces, including probably undoubtedly a lot of American money, against that, but there are also forces on the other side, because keep in mind, among the many people in the world, not just young Americans who think they might be drafted, not to mention lots of young Iranians who think they could be thrown into a war. From the Iraqi standpoint, this is a this is a war which from their standpoint seems to be primarily between the United States and the Iranians, two foreign countries, but which is hanging like the proverbial sword of Damocles over their head. This is where many of the bombs and the missiles could start falling. And there is the not too surprising reaction in Baghdad and throughout much of Iraq is that, uh, you know, this isn't our fight. We don't want other people fighting their war on our soil. And, And keep in mind, historically, that type of thing, happened a lot so one of the things which in fact there's been there's been a growing movement of in in uh, iraq you might remember oh let me say this this whole sort of crisis that's ongoing right now i'd say this is when it really began to heat up so i'm just going to take us back a little ways into history back to 2018 not that long ago but to give a kind of progression of events that i think have led up or have paid important steps to where we are now In May, I think, in the spring of 2018, there was an election in Iraq. Now, here's one of those things about parliamentary democracy. You know, every now and then when you let people vote, you never know what it is that they're going to vote for. Things can change rather abruptly. So what was important about that election? In 2018, there was an election that took the leading party in the Iraqi parliament – and it dropped it down. It lost two thirds of its seat. It was it was a party called the uh, uh, the the party of the state the state of law party, and that was pretty much a kind of regime party set up among politicians largely with American influence, back some some years before, and that had been in some ways the kind of stable governing party uh, that dropped that lost most of its seats. I think it dropped from. Uh, from 92 seats down to 25. And the party that became the biggest party in the Iraqi parliament was one led by a Shiite cleric, that is a religious man, by the name of Muqtada al-Sadr. Now, if anybody's been following, I don't know, there might be somebody who's been following Iraqi politics (laughs) for the last 20 years, you'll notice his name. all right. And one of the things about Muqtada al-Sadr is that he is probably one of the most powerful Shiite Islamic clerics in Iraq. Why is that important? Because 60% of Iraq's population is Shiite. So this man has a large, potentially majority constituency. Now, he's not the only Shiite cleric. He has lots of competitors, but he is a very important voice in that, and he now leads the biggest Party in parliament. And the other thing about Mokhtada al Sadr is that he has consistently styled himself two things. One, anti American. He's never liked the Yankees in Iraq, and he's done nothing but complain about them, argue that they are a curse on the country, and he wishes them gone. So that election advantaged him and disadvantaged those who'd been supporters of the American presence. The other thing that Mokhtada al Sadr presents himself as is not just as a Shiite cleric, but as an an Iraqi patriot who argues that he now stands for Iraq for the Iraqis and argues that he wants all foreign influence, American, he wants the Turks out of northern Iraq, he wants the Americans out of the country, and he says even though they are fellow Shiites, he wants the Iranians out of the country as well. Now that's the way he presents himself, that could be true. His opponents, which include part of the American Diplomatic and intelligence community in Iraq argue that, no, 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 that's suppose that Mokhtana al-Sadr is and always has been a proxy of the Iranians. And therefore, his political ascension in the Iraqi firmament is, in fact, the ascension of Iranian influence. So how things progress from there. Well, beginning in the summer and the fall, uh, there has been a growing influence in the country of something that, again, if you've been paying attention, you may have heard of something called the the PM. Sometimes they're called the PMU, sometimes they're the PMF. That stands for the the Popular Mobilization Forces. And the Popular Mobilization Forces are not the Iraqi Army. So let me explain that the Iraqi Army, again, largely an American-created and trained institution numbers around 50,000 you know on a good day okay that's 50,000 on paper i'm not sure how many of those guys actually show up for work every day not a terribly substantial force the popular mobilization forces are shiite militias all right they're not part of the army they are there are 40 different groups that compose them um they are all, however, well, they're, they are overwhelmingly Shiite. Many of them are loyal personally to Muqtada al-Sadr and others. Many of them are openly supported monetarily and militarily by Iran. For instance, there are lots of Iranian military advisors, formal and informal, with these PMU units. Now, I said the Iraqi army had about 50,000 men on a good day. Mm. The PMU numbers somewhere between 150 and 200,000. That is, they are three to four times the size of the Iraqi army, and I can also guarantee you they are far more motivated. They may not be necessarily as lavish with arms, but they are well-motivated, and leave no doubt about it, they are armed. Now, so here you have within Iraq – you see, if you're in terms of looking at, at American influence in Iraq, you can see that things are kind of shaky. You now, you're beginning to lose influence in the government, a government that you created. You've got the rise of what you believe are Iranian supported politicians. You now have Shiite militias that outnumber the army three to four to one. And those are the type of groups that the man who was killed, General Qasim Soleimani, was very, very skilled at developing relationships and alliances with. He's given, you know rightly or wrongly, he is personally credited with doing a lot of the legwork, a lot of the personal work, a lot of the, you know the, the uh, head padding and, and handshaking that was necessary to forge and the alliances and Iranian influence among the PMU and other groups. So also in the fall, if you go back and look through newspaper reports, you notice that every so often you had uh, rockets falling into the green zone, into the diplomatic zone in in central Baghdad, Uh, attacks on American military bases, uh, rockets fired at the embassy uh those were you know the general suspicion is that those were carried out by by units of the PMU nobody really took credit for it and if the PMU were doing it that was either Muqtada al-Sadr or the Iranians or someone who was encouraging them that's possible it's not necessary though there are lots of people who don't like the American presence who don't have to have an Iranian standing behind them telling to fire a rocket launcher. But nevertheless, those began to escalate. And then a couple of other things happened. In November, there were riots across the country. You might remember those being mentioned in the news. Hundreds of people were killed. And one of the things that that led to was the resignation of the prime minister, the head of the government, Okay, another person who was felt to be And what he was, you know, in some ways both obliging to the Americans and the Iranians. Now, the way that that his resignation was pitched in, in the U.S. press, I noticed, was that these protests were all against Iranian influence in the country. And his government was blamed for not curbing Iranian influence, and therefore his resignation, he was the kind of sacrifice in order to hopefully appease the mobs, which he really didn't do. But in Iraq and elsewhere, these demonstrations were often about something else. They really weren't so much about Iraq. They were about what was considered to be rampant corruption, the failure of the government to actually govern the country, the failure of the government, and among other things, the failure of the government to protect Iraq from you know, predatory foreign powers. Uh, now, the, the other thing about it is that uh, the, the, the prime minister, a guy by the name of Adil Abdul Mahdi, I won't mention his name again, but he resigned. So where does that leave the whole government of Iraq as we speak? Well, he has resigned, but the parliament and and the president have not picked a new prime minister to replace him. So he's basically there as a placeholder until that's done, and no one knows when that's going to happen because the parliament is now hopelessly divided. So again, I would emphasize, Iraq, in a sense, at the present time, barely has what could be termed a functional government. The prime minister and with him, his cabinet resigned. They are therefore a government which has supposedly stepped aside, but they're still in power making decisions because no one else can agree upon who is going to replace them. Now, that's an extremely volatile situation. And then we add to that what happened, you know, barely a week ago, everything, you know, the Christmas season. The, you have angry mobs now, anti-American mobs with the Shiite militias who who attempt to storm the American embassy, all right, which, remember, for U.S. interest in the Middle East, always brings back those days of 1979 where what happened in Tehran mm. an American embassy was stormed. Americans were taken hostage, and that led to a... A whole uh, – that, that really is what sort of created the present black, bad blood between the United States and uh, the Islamic Republic of, of Iran. So I think it's all of these things leading up to it, and then you've got Soleimani arriving in Baghdad ostensibly to, to attend a funeral. Uh, he was there to attend a funeral for some men from the PMU who had been killed on an American airstrike on one of those units near the Syrian border for unstated reasons some days before. Maybe that's what he was there for. Maybe he was there to, to further Iranian interests in Iran. Maybe he was there to plan some sort of attacks or to supervise the storming of the embassy. Nevertheless, all of these things have played into each other. And, and here's the type of thing, again, that I would want to remind your listeners of is that when some big thing breaks in the news, there's always a backstory to it, there's always a history to it. It just doesn't emerge out of nowhere. And just going back over a period of two years, I think you can see the incremental steps, the kind of steady escalation of tit for tat violence. Which has brought us to the present situation Now the present situation Is that the Iranians feel themselves To be Greatly offended Right Deeply aggrieved by what was From their standpoint And you know it was The murder of one of their Important state officials While on a Official visit to a neighboring Country By Drones from a third country Which decided To take that particular time To kill one of their representatives That you know under any Kind of sense of International law That's a dangerous step to take Uh, They have hoisted what they call The red flag of vengeance Um, And now everyone is waiting around To see what will happen Now here I tell you Is that
0: Tell you I don't know what the Ready? Iranian. Yeah. we're at the bottom sure. of the hour. Why don't we hold it there? Okay. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence and Dr. Carmen Bolter. It's kind of like a tag team tonight. We're starting with the current crisis in Iran, which has caused a great upheaval in the American electorate, including a lot of young men thinking for first time in decades about the draft. And we're laying foundation for why are we in this condition tonight? What is, what, is going, well, what is the historical context for this constant human proclivity to be at each other's throats? And you'll notice in Rick's backgrounder that all of the names that he mentioned were men. Keep that in mind. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. a bit about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking of course about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight, uh, com, that's our homepage and click on that banner which says at the top save lives pure water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology. It's a filtering technology in, uh, uh, in a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form Um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter it will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of of uh, mineral water whatever the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites you know on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun and obviously they're not in non-allergenic plastic so the water is ruined and thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of hurricane marie sat there and, and rotted in the sun the same thing's been happening in the bahamas if tonight in this 12 days of christmas you want to do something to 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 inject meaningful change into a whole group of people's lives 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern bahama islands tonight just just go to that site click on that banner and then scroll down below the yes i want a help button and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago. Nothing has changed. It is like living in an apocalypse. It is like living in, you know, the land of the Lord of the flies. It's living in conditions that you tonight, listening to my voice, cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours, 36 hours, two months, five months, you know, a year five years, it's its impossible. They've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization. I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them you know, in the northern ports there, and they desalinized seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands, but it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight. And yes, it's tax-deductible because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure, 99.99% 99.99% pure water and the bottle and the system is recyclable and all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles and the bottles that they're in, the actual water bottles that you're sending, they will last essentially forever and they will reach how many people? A thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. So do whatever you can open your heart and make a difference in someone's life tonight. back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning, beginning with Dr. Richard Spence, giving us a very informative and, I think, critical for the rest of the evening discussion on Iran and the likelihood of another Mideast war. Can you believe it? We learned, we, we learned nothing from 2003, apparently. And then that will be followed by uh, Dr. Carmen Bolter. We're going to widen our focus and we're going to talk about the historical background of the human species and why it seems to be the current proclivity to attack and kill anything that is the other. Is this an inherent part of the human condition or is this recent, a recent development in historical memory? Extraordinary adventure and exploration awaits us in the next couple three hours, so Rick, uh, I had to interrupt you there uh please continue
1: okay, well, you were talking about another war in the middle east um so I'd say we're not looking at another war in the middle east, we're just looking at the same
0: war ah, okay, the same war
1: if you if you think of it as a a war for influence, for dominance, for control. It's a. Remember, one of the things about what we call the Middle East, you know, that area basically stretching from Egypt through Syria, through Iraq and and uh, Iran and the rest. Uh, it, it, it's the, the you know it's the heartland of civilization. I mean, human beings. If you want to look back in human history, that's where you end up. You know, uh, you know the, the the roots of of human civilization are found there. Uh, those are where the oldest cities are, those of where we've been doing our business in a business-like way longer than anywhere. And one of the ways of thinking about it is that it has been a continuous war for power, for influence, and for control. So I've got three maps as my images, and uh, I'll just try to go through those pretty quickly. Um, The first one, uh, which is simply called the Persian Empire. Okay, so
0: let I me let me direct app. people how to get there.
2: Okay.
1: Go
0: to the All other right. side of midnight.com, everyone. Click on tonight's banner for Dr. Carmen Bolter with that uh, reference to the sacred feminine that we're obviously going to be talking about a great deal later in the morning. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down a bit um, under the uh, – uh, where it says – well, let's see. Where's the earliest one? If you scroll down to – right under the banner on the uh, uh, on the guest page, the hiding of the sacred feminine. Click on uh, Dr. Richard Spence fast link to items that will take you to these maps. Item number one, the Persian Empire.
2: Okay.
1: So one of the things uh, for anybody who might've missed this somewhere along the line, Iran is Persia. Persia is Iran. So, The modern Islamic Republic of Iran arose out of what was the Empire of Iran, uh, which which fell – and the monarchy fell in 1979. And that history – Iran has only been Iran since 1934. Hmm. I'd emphasize that again. You had the Shah of Persia, Reza Shah Pahlavi, in 1934, in his infinite, you know, monarchical wisdom, decided that he was going to rename his country from Persia, which it had been known for thousands of years, to Iran. He thought that was a more modern name. But that's how Persia became Iran, but it's always Persia.
0: Do we know, Rick, so the, the, first, the derivation yeah. of the name Iran? Uh, yeah, it's related to the word Aryan.
1: Oh, right? and oh, I know. I know that brings up Nazis <laughs> and Aryans and swastikas, but not necessarily that kind of Aryan.
0: Well, it, it brings up a to... bunch of, of, of white guys. Well, yeah.
1: Um, or, you know, Central Asian nomadic tribes. I mean, Aryans are spread out everywhere. I mean, nobody knows who the Aryans were or they even existed. It's, it's the name that we give to what appear to have been the ancient progenitors to a group of related languages. All right. Mm -hmm. So here again is one of those things that might surprise some people. And I bring this up. Iranians, i.e. Persians, are not Arabs. Absolutely not. All right. They are largely Muslim. They're overwhelmingly Shia Muslim, but they are not Arabs. Arabs and Persians have always been two very different peoples, different languages. So, for instance, the Persian language, Farsi, is not related in any way to Arabic It's related to European languages and also to Hindi. It's related to Aryan languages. That's actually what Aryan describes. So back in the 1930s, what uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi wanted to do is that he wanted to unify or to try to give greater unity to a country that embraced a number of different ethnic groups like most countries do. And he decided that by renaming Persia, which was the name of a particular, the sort of dominant group, but only one of them, the the Fars or the Persians, he wanted to try to make it more inclusive for related linguistic groups, you know, like the Kurds and others. There are millions of Kurds that live in Iran, and they and the Persians speak uh, somewhat kindred languages. That is, they're more alike than they are alike to the Arabs. So that was part of his idea. But But it's a very recent invention. All right, so... Iran, it, as a name for Persia, goes back to 1934, and they historically – we're talking about Persia, and Persia is one of these – it's one of these things that, that has expanded and contracted several times over the last three or 4,000 years. So the first map, number one, called the Persian Empire – this is the, the great Persian – the Achaemenid Empire, the biggest Persian Empire that existed – back around 500 B.C. So my main point of this is to show you that there was a Persian, so there was a large empire, a much larger Iran than exists today, which ruled the entire Middle East. Notice it ruled Egypt, Syria, uh, what would later become uh, Turkey in the Ottoman Empire, Anatolia. And notice where it says Assyria and Babylonia, and where Babylon is, that is where Iraq is today. That was part of this empire. And this was the empire that a couple of hundred years later, around 300 BC, would be conquered and destroyed by Alexander the Great. Who, yes, I would note, is yet another guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, while Alexander Alexander would destroy that empire, the Persians would keep coming back. But you know, Persia is like a—it's one of these phoenixes. You know, it appears to be—you know—the Mongols destroy it, bounces back. The Ottomans invade, bounces back. And so, if you then go down to map number two, this is another version. It says Iranian tribes, but it actually shows another version of the Persian Empire. This one, around the 15th and 16th centuries. This, again, is still you know this is a smaller version. It's a little closer in size to what modern. Uh, Iran by be. Uh, you can see that Tehran was a small town right up there at the north. But this was a, a, a later version of the Persian Empire. This was the Safavid Empire. This, by the way, was the empire that turned Iran or rather it turned Persia into a Shiite state that made Shiite Islam the official sort of state religion. But the main thing I draw attention to here is that, again, if you look, you notice that you've got this kind of yellowish, not-quite-baby-vomit yellow, <laughs> which is the color of the, of the empire. It's a I family really show, like right, my computer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could have said something else, but I didn't. Yes, good, And,
0: good, good and then you'll
1: notice that over in the other – you've got the, uh, the purple area, which is the Ottoman Empire. We've talked about them before, but we won't now. But in between, you've got this sort of slashed area, this sort of gold-purple. That, again, is Iraq. Okay, that again is Mesopotamia. And the point of this map is that from the 15th to the 18th centuries, you know, not thousands, but hundreds of years ago, the Persians and the Ottomans were constantly trading this area back and forth. So sometimes the Persians would take Baghdad and add it to their empire, then the Ottomans would take theirs. And so it was a constantly trading back and forth. So here again is that. Part of it is that from the Persian, i.e. Iranian point of view, there are two important things to keep in mind, which is different than the American perspective. One is that Iraq, Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, are right next door, right? Mm -hmm. They directly – they share a long border to the west, and when Iraq – Or whatever it was called at any point in time Wasn't right next door It was part of a Persian state So from a historical point of view Rightly or wrongly Fairly or unfairly But it is what it is Persians, i.e. Iranians Feel that they have a long A millennial long Vested interest In that area And what happens there And who governs it They view it as a kind of natural certainly as an historical extension, either an area that, if it is not part of some greater Persian empire, should in some way be subject to it, or should in which Iran has great interests. So the last map I've got down below is one that shows contemporary Iraq. And here again, going back a little history, Iraq as a country, as an actual thing on the map called Iraq – doesn't date before 1920. Okay, it again is a very modern creation. It is a creation of the British. No one locally ever wanted it. Uh, it was carved out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. So, what's important about this? Remember, I was talking about the, the instability in Iraq. Well, it shows again different colored areas, the sort of brownish area to the north. Those are Kurds. Kurds which have been in the news a lot lately, are not Arabs. Okay? They are included in a country which is mostly Arab. They're Muslims, but they're not Arabs. They're not exactly Iranians either, although lots of Kurds also live in Iran. They tend to want independence, and they're sort of up in the north doing their own thing. Nominally, they're part of a unified Iraq, but if they could push a magic button and not be, they'd push that button. Then down towards the south, you see this large green area. That is the land of the Shiites, basically everything south of Baghdad. And you also notice you've got a convenient, a handy pie chart, which again shows that Shia Arabs are about 60% of the population. Sunni Kurds are about 17%. And then Sunni Arabs, also Arabs but Orthodox Muslims as opposed to Shiite Muslims, are only about 20%. So the Shia are, again, not an absolute majority, but they are a plurality in the country. They are the single most important group. You could run Iraq without the Kurds. You could run Iraq without the Sunnis. But you can't run anything in the way of Iraq without the substantial loyalty of most of the Shia. And that's actually what the battle is about. The Shia Arabs in Iraq are part of the same sect of of Shia Islam, the Twelver sect, as in Iran. Mm. And therefore, Iran is looked at as a kind of, well, a kind of spiritual heartland. In fact, the Islamic Republic to people like Muqtada al-Sadr, the Iraqi Shiite leader I was talking about earlier, that's really the kind of state he would want to create. That's his model of, of how he would want to reorganize the country if he could. So there are instabilities here that exist on many levels. Iraq itself is, is, is a house of cards. Uh, the Iraqi parliament is a house of cards, which has already fallen. The whole region is in, in many respects. And and things have certainly, you know, this, this progression of events, uh, you know, starting with election in 2018, I mean, using that as our starting point has brought things to a very dangerous juncture. And everything right now, and I'll sort of bring up my concluding remarks, I guess, for this evening, what everything depends on right now is what the Iranians decide to do. Basically, when and where and how they will take their revenge. This much is fairly certain. That revenge, at some point in time, will be taken. But if thousands of years of civilization and dealing with other civilized peoples and barbarians and everyone from Alexander the Great to Ottoman sultans has taught them anything, it's that revenge is a dish best served cold. In fact, sometimes Persians are actually even credit for coming up with that aphorism.
0: <laughs> Not the Klingons? So, th-
1: <laughs> so here's what I think is going to happen, at least in the short term. I don't think they're gonna do anything. Now, it will happen eventually, but what everyone is doing now, you know, all those guys are getting nervous about the draft. Uh I mean there's an interesting case of the internet spreading a rumor very quickly, a Isn't fairly it? baseless yeah. one. But the thing is now we're all waiting for what they're going to do. And you know when you've got someone in that position Not that I would ever put someone in that position, but I could imagine that if I had someone in that position, you know what I would do? I would make them wait. I would make them wait and watch and wait and watch and worry about what I was going to do, and I wouldn't do anything until the time that they got a little careless and a little complacent. And then I would take my dish best served cold. So from that point, Richard, uh, I'll leave it to you and Carmen to do the rest of the evening. But let's see things how it go. Keep your eyes. Don't believe most of what you hear in the news. Remember to link things together. If there seems to be a connection, there generally is. And let's wait and see what happens.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, Rick, thank you so much. That was a brilliant, if, if shortened Overview for context, Carmen, you're at that. This all comes down to a bunch of guys, a bunch of men with weapons who've been doing to each other recently what they've been doing for the last 6,000 years. And one can forgive people for assuming that is the state of human beings. But you're here to tell us tonight that that is just not so. So let's start with some fundamental definitions. What the heck is patriarchy?
3: Well, patriarchy is left brain dominance, and it's if you can't see it, it's not there. It's concrete, mechanistic, power over, hierarchical, divisive uh, and and uh, it's it's okay, let's leave it at that for for that part of the definition, okay. But you're going to say now what's matriarchy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to
0: say, you know, in in, in conventional parlance, you know, you have societies run by men. There are historical precedents of societies run by women. And people tend to think, who are not experts or deeply in the weeds on this stuff, that, well, matriarchy has to be the opposite of
3: patriarchy. Is that actually true? Not at all. Matriarchy is not the opposite of patriarchy. So matriarchy has to do with egalitarian cultures dream time symbolism timelessness collaboration cooperation leaving more for the children connection to the earth uh, harmony with nature Uh, if it's not good for everyone it's not good at all so it's not a society run by women okay but the other thing is the way things were organized In matriarchal egalitarian cultures the highest level of consciousness was the one who would take on leadership but leadership wasn't in the terms that we think of it now and it would be shared leadership and so I think of an airplane pilot to co-pilot and I have been in the position of being a co-pilot on an airplane and they said okay now you're holding you're, you're doing it and it's like, oh, wow, I could feel how every little move I made was changing the plane. I went, okay, you can, t- you can take that back now. Right. But that is kind of how they shared the leadership so that uh, other people could get a sense of the responsibility and practice a little bit. But everything was shared, and it was. it's also a different kind of morality. And so uh, we have to think about procreation. We have to think about how the feminine was honored men did not understand they had anything to do with procreation and that may be a tough pill to swallow after we've got freud talking about penis envy but what freud meant was women envied the fact that men were able to go into the marketplace run businesses own property that sort of thing but we've had a real psychological twist but also something that is that could let me just put it this way the agenda of the patriarchy has been to erase everything other than itself and so this idea of power over finding an enemy denigrating women not caring about nature all of that has led us to where we are and fighting and you know and my my god's better near god all of this is artificial it has nothing to do with the, the reality of humanity And I've been saying for decades, and this may sound a little glib, but we're going to come to see the last 6,000 years as the patriarchal hiccup. And everything else was matriarchal. But yet we almost can't see what that was. We talk about history, history's when the soldiers came, there's always been war. That's the period called patriarchy. And in archaeology, older is deeper. So the older cultures are matriarchal, and you can see it. So, you know, I just read this book called The Fall, and uh, they won't use the word, they're, they're examining the archaeological and anthropological evidence of egalitarian cultures, and they won't use the word matriarchy because I think a lot of people think it's the opposite, where women dominate men and the get other, even. And the, the other side revenge. of the coin, yeah.
0: Exactly. All right, uh, Carmen, let me, let me stop you because it seems to me just looking at, at, at human development from an evolutionary perspective, women are the foundation of society and civilization because they are those that can bear children and pass on, you know, to the next generation culture. Men are kind of superfluous, you know, it's like one and done. And then women primarily have that, you know, genetic and biological connection to childbearing and child rearing And all this. So historically, men should be kind of superfluous and women should be the bedrock of society, which you're saying has been true for tens and tens of thousands of years until we get to the last 6,000. And then that natural order of things is completely upended, and we have what you have kind of interestingly termed the hiccup how did it take root how
3: did that happen <laughs> okay i think i've been thinking about this for a long time um <laughs> i hope yeah so when famine was preeminent and women the society was hunter-gatherer there was a lot of leisure time and they didn't spend all their time gathering but women were gathering 80 percent of the food but still food was a little bit meager and women were procreating about every five years and they were doing all these rituals going into dream time menstrual huts collecting their their menstrual blood which is the highest form of dna which has everything necessary to create life the baby right and so but now it's been demonized and all these things have been have been completely turned on their head but men did not realize they had anything to do with procreation. So the rituals were blood from life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then when, okay, so let's say, think about horticulture. So let's bring the plant to the mouth of the cave. So now we have horticulture. Okay, well, let's make rows. Okay, rows of plants. And then there's a surplus. So now we have agriculture. So wh- when there was a surplus of food, women started to procreate more like every year. And I think somewhere in there, men went, aha, we do have something to do with this. Now, the result was blood from death. We don't need you. Now, let's think about the sacred feminine has the virgin, the mother, and the crone. Three phases of the feminine. Virgin is white, mother is red, crone is black, and that's respecting wisdom and that whole thing. So you still see the patriarchs wearing dresses with red, white, and black. But now they're going to have a sacrificial lamb. So every time you have blood from death, the, the, the men were repeating the rituals using blood from death instead of blood from life. Well, you can't tell me that's the same thing. Now, the other thing is if a woman has carried a child or nurtured children, they're not going to go kill somebody else's kid. If you're connected to childbearing, you don't think life is cheap in the same way. Now, having said all that, in the Greek times, 600 BC, when they were setting up demo- quote-unquote democracy, but that only counted white men, women couldn't vote, foreigners couldn't vote, only Athenian men could vote, all of a sudden, <clears throat> the mythology starts to change. So here's Zeus, and he's got a headache, and he hits himself in the head with an axe, and out pops Athena. Athena. Hmm. Now you don't even need a womb anymore. Uh... Then you've got Poseidon ejaculating into the sea, into a seashell, and out pops Aphrodite. Hey! So, as soon as there was this knowledge, then there was this whole thing about Medusa, the Amazon warrior priestesses, and they would get with the men, and if they'd get pregnant, they'd They bring the boy babies back. They were only raising the girl babies, and they were fighting against this whole transition. Okay,
0: we are at the top of the hour. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Dr. Carmen Bolter. We're going to explore in some really interesting ways this idea of patriarchy and matriarchy, and they're not the equivalent. Foundations of the very culture, the very transmission of life is dependent on women. How did men get the upper hand for six? thousand years continuing tonight in the Middle East here on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland we shall return
2: TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com
0: Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recordings have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today, and when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.